Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, healthcare reporter Megan Messerly answers your questions from Twitter and Facebook about the coronavirus vaccine. Afterwards, legislative reporter Riley Snyder breaks down what to watch out for as the legislature starts next week. And at the end of the show, we've got two more freshman legislators to introduce you to in our freshman orientation segment, Republican Senator Carrie Buck and Democratic Senator Roberta Lang. Normally on Indie Matters, we bring you a segment every week breaking down exactly where we are in the course of the COVID pandemic and what that means for Nevada. But for a few weeks now, we've entered a new or at least new-ish phase of the government response to COVID, and that's one based around vaccines. Whatever initial optimism emerged around early approvals of two very effective vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer has been muddied by a nationwide struggle to get millions of shots into millions of arms. That's also true of Nevada, where the plan to vaccinate the state's more than 3 million residents has already been forced to shift and evolve as time has gone on. So here to take your questions about the vaccine, the vaccine rollout, and all things related is a Nevada Independence healthcare reporter and our resident expert on all things pandemic, Megan Messerly. Megan, how you doing? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. All right. So we've got a couple questions today. We put out the call on social media, and you've been taking questions all over the last month and, and six weeks here about the vaccine, the vaccine rollout, and basically what people want to know. So we have some of those questions lined up for you, and we're just going to roll right through them. First, I think, is one that's on a lot of people's minds, and in that's Nevada is almost last when it comes to the per capita distribution of the vaccine. That's, you know, uh, the vaccine per 1,000 residents. But what else can the data tell us about Nevada's distribution of the vaccine so far? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think it's important to start off by noting that a lot of people have been relying on data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to look at this, right? Because they've been distributing data for all 50 states, makes it pretty easy to compare what's happening across the country. So looking at the CDC's data as of Thursday, we can see that about 194,000, almost 195,000 actually doses have been administered in Nevada. That includes about 167,000 first doses and 26,000 second doses. So, but we look at that CDC data, that's where we're seeing that Nevada has actually administered one of the fewest numbers of doses per capita. So as of Thursday, Nevada had administered the fifth fewest doses per capita of any state. Though it's worth noting that if you actually look at the CDC's data, and if you see how many doses have been distributed to each state from the federal government, and then how many doses they have administered to their residents, and then you calculate that as a percentage. So again, shots in arms as a percentage of doses received, you can actually see that Nevada ranks 20th in the nation. So it actually does quite a bit better um, at 57.4%. But then that sort of begs the question, okay, where are those other 43% of doses? Okay, so do we have any sense of why this is? Yeah, it's a good question. And I've been getting a lot of people reaching out to me about it. And I wrote a story about it this week. So one of the data points that's worth mentioning uh, is the fact that state data, if you look at it, is actually more current than the CDC's data. So for one, state data as of Thursday showed that about 210,000 doses of the COVID-19 vaccine have been administered in Nevada. Again, compare that to about 195,000 on the CDC's data. Of course, it's possible that other states are experiencing this same lag too. Their data is more current than the CDC's data, but just for sake of the argument, if we look at that CDC data, we slot in that Nevada number, that would move Nevada up to eighth for most doses administered as a percentage of those received. So that's one possible uh, factor, simply this data lag between state and federal data. 
Another thing, though, that we want to look at, and there's been a lot of talk about, is the fact that Nevada has actually still received uh, one of the fewest number of doses per capita from the federal government. So that means the number of doses actually coming into the state is fewer per capita uh, than it is for pretty much every other state. Nevada is uh, second fewest in the nation, only behind South Carolina. So that's one of the issues, too can't put more shots in arms if you're not getting enough doses into the state. So federal officials have been asking, you know, what's going on? What is the formula the federal government is using to allocate doses? They're still waiting for those answers. The state officials did receive confirmation. They're ordering the max maximum number of first doses. The federal government will allow them to order this week. And they're also ordering the number of second doses they need based on the day the shot was administered. Now that's only worth noting because you could order doses, uh, sort of the the federal government will tell you, you know, we offered you this dose on this date. So now 21 days later for Pfizer, you can order this dose, but Nevada actually order those doses based on the day the shot was administered. So they'll know that you, uh, you know, X person (laughs) received this dose on this specific day, you will need it exactly 21 21 days later, and they will order that dose specifically based on that time frame, not necessarily based on when the federal government thinks that dose should be up to be administered. So that's another factor um, contributing as well. And then the third thing that's really worth talking about is state officials have said this week that more than 50% of those, you know, unused doses, so that discrepancy between that doses uh, distributed and doses administered number are actually part of a program to vaccinate nursing home residents. Now, it's worth noting that that's a completely different program from the one that's vaccinating uh, essential workers and seniors right now, right? This is totally separate. Those doses are specifically allocated and set aside for residents and staff at long-term care facilities and nursing home facilities. There's a special program with the federal government uh, with uh, retail pharmacy chains, so Walgreens and CVS, that partners uh, one pharmacy with a nursing home and they're responsible for sending a strike team into that nursing home to vaccinate them. Now, part of the problem is that program is just rolled out slower than anticipated, but those doses are essentially earmarked exactly for that program. So they can't be used to vaccinate the general population. So that's partially why it appears that there are all these doses just sitting on freezer shelves in Nevada, but those can't just be diverted to essential workers or seniors. They have to specially be used for this program. Now, state officials said this week that they got verbal confirmation from federal officials that some of those doses can start to be used for the general population, depending on timing and when they're actually going to be needed for use for those um, nursing home, you know, sort of vaccination uh, visits. So we're going to see how that sort of affects some of this data in the coming week. But the the goal is that that gap between those two numbers should start to narrow. So related to all this, we've talked a lot in past installments of our weekly updates on the coronavirus, that data entry is this big hang up for the state, and that it's created a bottleneck in providing this data to the feds in the past. Do we have any sense of whether or not they've figured out this bottleneck? Right. So this really is that that last factor contributing to that gap between those two numbers. Um, State officials said this week that there is a backlog with data entry. They said that at the beginning of this week, there were about 20,000 unrecorded doses. We've talked before on this podcast. It takes about two minutes to enter every dose into the state's vaccine tracking system called WebIZ. 20,000 times two, that's 40,000 minutes. That's a lot of minutes, a lot of manual data entry for folks. Now, state officials um, said at the beginning of the week, they expected the process of processing all that backlog data to take about um, two weeks. So the goal is that it'll hopefully be done by the end of next week and Nevada will be caught up on that backlog. Uh, National Guard is helping out with that effort. State officials or uh, federal officials have been brought in to help with that effort. So they're hoping that there will be catch up there. But, you know, 20,000 doses again, you can see that um, starts to help narrow that gap again between what Nevada has received and what the data is showing that Nevada has actually administered. 
All right. A lot of information to absorb because <laughs> it's, it's a very complicated question, but I think that explains it. But part of it, and I want to dig down into this because this is another frequently asked question, is I think a lot of Nevadans have heard state officials, county officials say that the capacity to distribute vaccines is actually quite high, as we've seen these sort of mega vaccination sites come online. And yet, we're still struggling to see the benefit of those mega vaccination sites. Why is there this disparity between the capacity of the state to put shots in arms and the uh, supply of vaccine the state is receiving from the federal government? Yeah, it's a good question. And I mean, a lot of states are going through this as well. Obviously, you know, in Nevada, we're looking at why are we receiving fewer doses per capita than everyone else, but pretty much every state is not receiving as many doses as they'd like. And ultimately, this is just a supply issue. There's only so many doses that that can be turned out in any one time. You know, it's sliced up by state based on population. So, you know, just to give you a sense of of the scale, for the last few weeks, Nevada has only been receiving about between 35,000 and 40,000 first doses a week. So that's how many new people could be newly vaccinated each week. Nevada has more than 3 million people. So you can do the math and see it's going to take some time uh, to get through all those people. Now, state officials have said they have the ability to administer 126,000 first doses per week. So you can see uh, we could do essentially, you know, triple or quadruple what what we're receiving right now. Um, So I know they're hoping that we're we're going to start getting more supply. and, And we've heard that we're going to get at least a small increase um, next week. So hopefully those numbers will keep going up, but state officials don't know because they've just been given those numbers on a weekly basis, which they say makes it hard to plan. Um, and again, sort of for sense of, of scope and scale as well, Clark County says that it has the ability to administer between about 95,000 and 105,000 doses per week. You mentioned that we've st- stood up those um, mega vaccination sites, right? There's the site at Cashman Center, which, you know, can, can you know, get through a lot of people. Um, Southern Nevada Health District and Clark County are ramping up Another vaccination site at the Las Vegas Convention Center right now that they're just using that for second doses to sort of distribute that first dose here, second dose there, and get that site up and running and sort of make sure that all the the protocols and everything are in place there. So they'll be able to use that as a mega vaccination site as well. But right now it really is just a supply issue. And then we're sort of waiting on uh, the federal government, you know, ordering doses and we're waiting on uh, the the vaccine, you know, manufacturers themselves to simply just turn out more doses. Well, that's an excellent segue to the next listener question, and that is about the supply question. We've heard the Biden administration say that they're looking at expanding the scope of the uh, federal government's supply of the vaccine in part through ordering simply more doses um, of those vaccines that have already been approved. Uh, What do we know about how quickly the federal government can expand its supply and how quickly it can ship those vaccine doses to states? Yeah, so the interesting announcement that came down recently from the Biden administration was that they have planned to purchase an extra 100 million doses each from Pfizer and Moderna. So that's an extra 200 million doses in total. That means we've ordered about 600 million doses. Again, since that's a two two dose shot, um, that's about 300 million Americans that can be vaccinated. And and, uh, President Biden has said that the goal is to vaccinate that many people by the end of summer or beginning of fall. So again, that's sort of our our goal, our hope, uh, you know, but it it just depends on the production to be able to get there. Um, You know, one thing to keep in mind, the the US population is uh, 328 million or so, uh, but you have to keep in mind also that currently only those 16 and older are eligible to receive the vaccine. can be given to those 16 and up. Uh, Pfizer is 18 and up. So actually children aren't able to be vaccinated right now. So you have to actually reduce that total uh, population number to see the total vaccinatable population. 
On the other hand, Pfizer and Moderna are both running clinical trials right now for children. The hope is that we will have some data to know whether these are these vaccines are safe um, and whether they have efficacy in children as well. And at that point, we might be able to expand you know, these doses and be able to give them to that children population um, as well. And then the interesting thing to mention as well, Obviously, Pfizer and Moderna are the players on the scene right now, but we have other doses potentially or other um, vaccine manufacturers potentially um, coming online. Most recently, we're recording on Friday uh, this morning, Johnson & Johnson announced uh, its data. And so they've said that they'll have about 7 million doses ready by the time uh, the FDA approves potentially approved. They have to go through the approval process to get uh, that emergency use authorization from the FDA. But once the FDA gives the go ahead, they, they expect to have about 7 million doses on hand. And then their goal is about 30 million doses by the end of early April. Now the benefit there, those are pretty small numbers compared to these, you know, 100 billion numbers we're talking about. But the good thing about Johnson and Johnson, it's a one dose shot. So you get it, you get one shot and, and you're good to go. Okay. So Moving on to a slightly different topic when it comes to vaccines, and that's the efficacy of the vaccine against uh, mutated strains of the coronavirus. We've seen, I think, a lot of hand-wringing over the last couple of weeks over emergent strains, um, not only from Britain, which was more viral, but also uh, from Brazil and South Africa. Do we have any idea of what what data exists to show the efficacy of the currently approved vaccines against these new strains and how the, the current system for vaccinations is set up to respond to something like a rapidly mutating virus. Yeah, I mean, and really the conversation that's happening right now as we see these new strains emerging is, you know, this is what we have right now, but there could be more strains that emerge in the future, right? As more people get the virus, there's just more chances for, for mutation as it spreads. Uh, so that's why, you know, state officials, federal officials have been saying it's so important that we get as many people vaccinated as possible, not only for our own health, but to prevent future mutations. Again, just yeah, more spread means more possibility of mutations. Now, looking at the ones that we're dealing with right now, um, the data so far from Pfizer and Moderna show that they appear to work against the UK strain pretty much as well as they do against, you know, what we've been dealing with for the last year or so. Where there's more concern right now is over the South African strain. Um, it's worth noting that the U.S. up until yesterday had not had any uh, cases identified, but there were actually two identified in South Carolina um, on Thursday. And so, you know, now with cases here, you know, at home, that's that's going to be even more of a concern for folks moving forward. Uh, so far, there's been a Moderna study that showed that that it still is somewhat effective against the South African strain, but it is less effective uh, than it is against, uh, again, what, what we've sort of been dealing with the last um, few months. Moderna interestingly announced this week at the same time they announced that uh, they said that they are running uh, two new clinical trials. So they're actually running a clinical trial specific to a booster shot for the South African vaccine. So that could be given to people who've already had their, you know, two dose regimen. So they're running a clinical trial on that. And then they're actually running an all new clinical trial based around a, a just South African strain dose, you know, so the original dose would just be based off of the South African strain. So they're uh, running those clinical trials right now. Obviously, it's going to take some time to get that data, but um, the process is at least beginning right now, which is helpful. And then again, we talked about Johnson & Johnson, uh, the new player on the scene. Uh, their data, again, has shown that it is effective against the South African strain, though it is weaker against the strain. So um, again, you know, people are saying you should, you should still get the vaccine. Obviously, we'd love everything to be 100% effective, uh, but having some amount of, of it being effective is still going to be better than not having the vaccine. Uh, but in the, these companies that are, are focused on the vaccine are taking a look at their data, uh, you know, running more clinical trials where, where necessary um, 
to sort of make sure that we are responding to the strains that we we are seeing emerge. All right. So we're running out of time here. So I think we're, what we're going to have to do is run through a bunch of questions as a speed round, or at least as speedy as we can. And so I'm just going to, I'm going to shoot them at you and you're going to do your best, I hope. <laughs> All right. So if someone's already contracted the coronavirus and has COVID antibodies as a result of that, should they still get the vaccine? Yes. So the, the top line is talk to your doctor about it. But in general, we don't know how long natural immunity lasts. So people who have been infected generally should get it. It's just going to be a question of when the time frame people have been talking about is 90 days or so. But the best advice would be to talk to your doctor about what's right for you. Okay. So related to the age limits for who gets the vaccine first, right now, Nevada is vaccinating those 70 and older. Do we have any idea when that general population lane will start opening to people 65 or 60 and older? Yeah, again, this is just a coefficient of how quickly we're actually able to get the vaccine. Um, you know, Nevada has, um, you know, hundreds of, of thousands of seniors, and we need to get through that population first. We know based on the numbers, we have not gone anywhere near that many. So, um, you know, initial data had shown it was going to be probably, you know, many, many weeks before we get through that 70 and older population. But I know uh, state officials are trying to get to that, you know, 65 plus and then pre folks with pre-existing conditions, uh, populations as soon as they can. All right. So lots of Nevadans have lost their employer-sponsored health insurance as a result of just losing their jobs over the past year, what with the past year being what it was. Is there going to be a cost for uninsured people to get vaccinated? No. So actually, the, the federal government has purchased all of these vaccines. So the vaccines are, are free for people. Uh, you may, if you have insurance, you may be asked for your insurance card. That's just uh, so that the provider administering you the vaccine can actually bill for the cost of putting the shot in your arm. Um, but whether you're you're on Medicaid, whether you have um, private insurance, whether you are uninsured, there will be no cost to you to receive the vaccine. Does a person's immigration status impact their ability to get the vaccine? No, uh, you are able to get the vaccine regardless of your immigration status. Uh, state officials have mainly been working on, you know, encouraging uh, the immigrant community specifically to get vaccinated, making sure that there's outreach and enough languages so people know that it's available to them. And then again, working through some of the concerns people might have about um, having to provide some sort of identification to prove their age, that they're eligible to get the vaccine um, and working through any concerns people might have about the fact that um, this immunization record is tracked by the state, but that information is not shared with the federal government it's confidential, uh, can't be shared. So state officials have been reiterating folks should not have concerns about that. Okay. And one final question. If a dog were to wear pants, would it wear on on all four legs or merely the rear two? Would definitely wear them on the rear two. Okay. Uh, well, that is where we're going to have to leave it for now. As always, if you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can head to our website, thenevadaindependent.com. There you can find weekly updates from Megan in her coronavirus contextualized series, as well as a regularly updated dashboard with all the latest COVID-19 data. Megan, thanks so much. Happy to be here. With lawmakers restarting their work on February 1st, we thought now would be a good time to give you some insight into what to expect in the 120-day legislative session. To start, Nevada is one of four states that has a biennial legislature, meaning it only meets every two years for 120 days. The other states are Montana, North Dakota, and Texas. The 21 members of the state Senate and the 42 members of the Assembly are citizen legislators, meaning they usually have jobs outside of being a part-time lawmaker, including work such as teachers, lawyers, or ranchers. 
With the pandemic-induced economic recession, millions of dollars are being cut from wherever the state can find money. There will likely have to be some bipartisan work to solve some of the looming problems because unlike the federal government, the state must run a balanced budget and cannot spend more than it has. We have some clips from an Indie Talks virtual event we held recently with state lawmakers on both sides of the aisle to discuss the upcoming session. I also talked with our lead legislative reporter, Riley Snyder, and asked him how the state is going to deal with the budget shortfall. Surprisingly, I think to a lot of people, the governor's budget um, called for $8.68 billion in spending of state dollars over the two years of the budget cycle. And that's only about a 2% decrease from the last two-year budget, which is pretty surprising, right? Because we're in a pandemic. International tourists can't come to Las Vegas. Uh, People aren't coming to casinos. There's capacity limits on everything. Business has really slowed or been shut down. So To me, and I think to a lot of people, it's kind of surprising that the budget cuts aren't worse than they are, given that most of our tax revenue comes from tourism, heavy industries, gaming tax, sales tax, all those kinds of things. So there are a couple budgetary, um, I use the term landmines, people might not appreciate that term, but landmines out there. One of those is federal aid to the state. What might happen now that Joe Biden has been elected president and sworn into office and that Democrats have taken control of Congress? So Senator Ben Kikever talked a little bit about that during the Indy Talks. Yeah, I just think that um, we need to be careful, Riley. If we get a sort of cash windfall from the federal government, right, we need to be very thoughtful and strategic about how we deploy those dollars so that we don't start getting out over our skis in terms of what we can support on a go-forward basis budgetarily. Um, And I'd I'd be particularly interested in looking at investing in infrastructure where possible, um, knowing that that creates jobs immediately. We can uh, potentially do significant upgrades to um, our IT infrastructure if we have that flexibility. and just some of those projects that we've put off for a long time that we might be able to um, use some of these dollars for without um, committing to long-term spending that we may not be able to support. So with the governor, you know, not increasing taxes in his proposed budget, what are some of the other ideas that the legislature is kind of putting forward other than relying on the federal government? So a lot of it is going to come down to um, individual program budget cuts. There's some things that have already been identified, like class size reduction. That special budget account has kind of existed outside of the main education budget account. That's being cut in half, and then it's being folded into this new funding formula. So there's a lot of changes sort of on the back end um, to try to accomplish the big ticket items that they want to get done this session, but also have to be done given that the governor didn't raise taxes. And I thought a really interesting part of the Indy Talks was this back and forth between Senator Kikefer and Assembly Speaker Jason Frierson. And we'll cut to that in a minute. But kind of the, the, the impetus is like, whose responsibility is it to raise taxes? Is it the legislatures? Because they have to like pass the bill. They have to get the two thirds. Or is it the governor? Should he use his bully pulpit to promote a certain tax increase? Should he be working sort of hand in glove with lawmakers to, um, you know, find a tax increase that works for everyone? So, so let's go back to that conversation. Um, so, you know, no, I, I, I agree. And I, I hope that he's not alone in wanting to have a conversation about about revenue, because that's really what we're talking about here. And uh, if we are talking about what uh, that's going to go to and having some bipartisan conversations about accountability, we're all for it. Um, but I don't think that we should go into this session shutting down the opportunity to have a conversation about about revenue. So when you ask about the mechanism for dealing with these uh, of course, we have to wait for the economic forum, um, but we know the numbers are not great. They're not good, um, no matter what they are. They could be bad or worse. 
And so I think that the mechanism is for us to have a bipartisan, robust conversation about uh, diversification, about stabilizing our, 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 our revenue sources and revenue streams, and quite frankly, about, about revenue in general. The governor has proposed a budget that does not increase taxes for the second consecutive session. Um, and when there has been historically um, the robust conversation about revenue, it's been with the governor's lead. And um, that has simply not happened. Conversations are inevitable, they'll be had. What we should be thinking about is um, whether any of them, all of them uh, are um, the appropriate way to, uh, to, to spread out the burden of uh, funding government in a way that we think is, is appropriate. Um, there are always going to be differences over what that level of appropriateness is, and sometimes we get we get brought down into our corners on that. But the the conversation that we're talking about is inevitable; it's coming. We've got two ballot questions coming to the floor right away. I, I just feel compelled to point out we have ballot measures expressly because we haven't had bipartisan support. That's why we have ballot measures. I would welcome a bipartisan alternative and we just haven't had it. We thought we came close during last special session and next thing you know, there's a, a, a quick meeting and all of a sudden a, a commitment to support revenue uh, was gone. And so, yes, we're gonna have uh, an opportunity to have these bipartisan conversations. And that's what I was talking about earlier when I said, uh, even if you're outnumbered, there's a way to mitigate things so that you have a meaningful contribution to the outcome. Even if you don't like it, you make it less damaging than what you thought it was. But, you know, we, we are here for that reason. The governor cannot get revenue without a two-thirds vote from the legislature. We all know that. So it wouldn't make a lot of sense before we have two-thirds uh, open support to put it in an in a, in a initial budget. I'll, I'll just I'd say, look, neither Kenny Gwynn nor Brian Sandoval had two-thirds when they walked into the legislatures proposing um, a new tax. And um, a little bit of leadership went a long way in persuading people to, to, to get there. Um, and, you know, we, we historically amend budgets by the, that, that the governor proposes by a couple percentage points. And if um, the governor doesn't choose to use um, sort of his bully pulpit and his authority, then we just haven't historically seen the legislature uh, go a different direction. Again, I, you know, look, I, I, I'm not going to stand by and be silent about comparing Governor Sislak to, to, to Governor Gwynn or Governor Sandoval. They knew the math. So if any of any of your colleagues are willing to vote for revenue, give the governor a call. If we'd have had that call months ago, it probably would be in the budget. I talked with Riley about the power dynamics in the legislature between the Democrats and the Republicans and how it has shifted since last session. Yeah, so Republicans gained three seats in the Assembly and one seat in the Senate. They flipped former Senator Joyce Woodhouse's seat and they uh, won three super close swingy districts in the um, state assembly. But this is all important. Um, you know, they're not close to a majority in either body, but you need a two thirds um, of the members of either body to pass a tax increase within the state constitution. There's a handful of other procedural things that require a two thirds, but the biggest one is tax increases. So now Republicans have more leverage than they did before. In 2019, the assembly could pass tax increases without like any input from Republicans or any votes from Republicans. So they were sort of um, you know, while they were brought along, they weren't really part of the process. So if there's any effort to do anything like that this session beyond passing a constitutional amendment that could go to the ballot box, which only requires a majority vote, they're going to need Republican support. And one, I don't think Republicans are really in the mood to raise taxes. They've said we're in a pandemic. This is not the time. Um, and 
Two, I think there's just a, a number of proposed constitutional um, increases that could go forward. And there's like a lot of Republican asks, so they're going to have to like find the best way to leverage their majority to try to get what they want. They've brought up election reform, which is something that um, Assemblywoman Jill Tolles talked about. We can cut to in a second. But that's a big one that's going to be a difficult um, sort of uh, needle to thread for the Republicans to try to not, um, you know, say the election was fraudulent, which it wasn't, but also try to get some changes done to the state's electoral system and, and what they see are, you know, major glaring problems with how we conduct elections. I do think that the legislation that was passed over the special session uh, opened doors to a lot of questions. Um, when you had the combination of universal mail-in ballots without having that cleaned up voter rolls um, to the extent that would have really helped reduce some of that doubt, um, when you didn't have a structure in place of communication uh, from top down from Secretary of State to the counties um, just to help reduce miscommunication with um, the public, then it left open the doors for um, questions. And then you combine that universal mail-in ballots with the, um, you know, what we call ballot harvesting, right? It just, it just left open doors for people to make those accusations or questions. And I think that it's important that we, um, we can address those while still calling the election ballot. Another big thing that's coming up other than voter reform uh, is redistricting, right? Uh, happens every 10 years during the census. What's going on with redistricting, especially since the Democrats are in charge? There's also been this bill put forward by Republican Senator Ben Kiefer to make an independent redistricting commission. Yeah. So like with basically every aspect of public life, the pandemic kind of threw the census redistricting process for a loop. So there were a lot of delays last year in terms of the census um, process itself. We're recording this on um, Thursday evening, and we found out yesterday that the U.S. Census Bureau won't be able to transmit um, census data to states until the end of uh, April, I believe. So that is not a problem for other states because they have legislatures that meet year round. But Nevada only meets for 120 days and we're going to be done by the end of May, beginning of June. So what this means and kind of what um, legislative leaders are looking towards is that there's just going to have to be a special session dedicated for redistricting to have the time to sort of draw these districts, make sure that there's enough public input and to um, do that process because that last month of the legislative session is usually just budget focused, policy focused, trying to shut the, the whole thing down um, successfully. So that's going to be a big change. We we're talking about um, leverage a little bit earlier for Republicans. That's a big part of their leverage is please don't draw us into obscurity um, because, you know, the legislature's Democratic controlled. The maps only require a majority vote and the governor is a Democrat. So what I think a lot of people don't remember about the 2011 process, because some of us were in middle school or younger, Joey, is that um, the governor at the time, Brian Sandoval, was a Republican, but the legislature was Democrat. So he vetoed uh, several versions of the maps that the legislature put forward. The whole process ended up in court with special masters drawing the districts. Um, so everyone was kind of cool with that for 10 years. But now the Democrats control um, both the governor and legislature. The Republicans have very limited options, um, especially if it's going to a special session where they can't hold out their votes for that and return for something else. It is kind of I, I do find it kind of interesting. It's kind of like the uh, obviously to a much lesser extent, like nuclear proliferation, right, where the Democrats are in charge right now so that they, they could potentially gerrymander to help themselves out. but. In the future, if they don't have an independent redistricting commission and they're not in charge, it could hurt them. 
Yeah, and the proposal you talked about from Senator Kikeffer, that's something that the League of Women Voters uh, of Nevada was pushing, failed to qualify for the ballot, again, because of the pandemic, made it harder to collect signatures. But his proposal would have pushed this whole idea of a redistricting commission out until 2030. The idea being that would sort of lessen the political pressure. But for Democrats, it's like, you know, we're not putting down our guns till everyone else puts down their guns. Um, the, the Most of the complaints about redistricting and gerrymandering have come from Democrats. It's in states that Republicans control and they draw the map so that Democrats are sort of squeezed out of having majorities. Nevada's kind of like the rare case where it's the opposite. So I think Democrats look at this as like, if we're not mutually disarming, we're not just going to disarm and let, you know, them run hog wild. Republicans will say, and they're going to certainly file lawsuits if they feel this to be the case, that you can't just draw unfair maps and like draw us into legislative obscurity for an entire decade. But it's very much a, a, a reality on the table. I just want to talk about, you know, what are other uh, major issues that are going to be being brought up in this session? Yeah, well, this is a unique time in that legislative leaders don't really want to take on too many bills because, again, the legislature itself is going to be closed to the public and to lobbyists. So the process is going to be very different than how it's really ever been in the past. So I'm not sure we're going to get a lot of like cracks at big policy bills. But this is the only time that they get to do this. It's like once every two years. So there's going to be a lot of pressure to like see what they can get done. Um, I've heard proposals for various uh, gun control measures. Those are going to be up again. Um, the, the work that was um, started by Assemblywoman Sandra Howdegy in the last legislative session, um, she said at the time, like, I'm coming back to 2021 with ideas. The funding formula, those changes, that's going to be a huge conversation and discussion of how we fund education and any changes that we make. Already, I'm hearing grumblings from uh, various people in interest groups about how the, the governor's office and the legislature is, is working on that. So um, it's like a lot of planning for what comes next because there's still so much uncertainty with COVID. The legislature itself is affected deeply by COVID and sort of dealing with the pandemic. Um, so hate to say wait and see, but wait and see. Well, Riley, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Cool. Thanks, Joey. There's a lot more that is going to happen at the legislature that didn't quite make it into this podcast unless you really want us to start putting out a three-hour-long episode every week, which I'm sure my co-host Jacob, as well as myself, would appreciate not having to edit. If you want to hear more insight from the legislative leaders, check out the full video and write-up of our Indie Talks event, where we had a lively discussion on everything from the Clark County Education Association's proposed tax increase to how the legislature is going to physically work during the pandemic. Also, I'd like to note that Riley did an Ask Me Anything Q&A session about the legislature on Reddit this week. That will be linked in the description of this episode, but you can also find it on the Nevada Politics subreddit, where you'll get all sorts of Riley wisdom from the years he's been covering the legislature. Unfortunately, he does not answer the dog pants question, and if you don't get that reference, you should be following Riley Snyder on Twitter. This segment was produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with production help from Jacob Solis, Riley Snyder, and Michelle Rendells. All right, and we are now on to the third installment of Freshman Orientation, where we get to meet new members of the Nevada Legislature. Carrie Buck is a freshman Republican senator who was a teacher, charter school principal, and president of the Pinecrest Foundation in Las Vegas before coming to Carson City. 
She told us about her journey into the education world. I grew up in Hinton, Iowa. I was a farmer's daughter and my dad farmed on the weekends and evenings. And then he would be an accountant by day. My mother worked. And then I moved to uh, Montana to pursue a teaching degree. After I graduated college up at Montana State University, I uh, moved down to Las Vegas because they were hiring 1,500 teachers every single year. My first job was 36 ELL students in which I was able to teach, but half of them knew English and I knew little Spanish, but we had all languages in there, Swahili and Japanese. And, and so it was quite interesting and a great first year experience. And then I went right back to school, my first year teaching to be an administrator. In 2006, I became the principal of C.T. Sewell Elementary School, was one of the lowest performing schools at the time. And I grew that over the next few years with an amazing team of educators to National Title I School in 2014. Then I was recruited to go to Pinecrest Academy and grew that to now it's six schools serving, gosh, over 7,000 students. Buck has been a familiar face in the competitive Henderson area district in recent years after losing a close race to Democratic Senator Joyce Woodhouse in 2016. She was put forward as a possible replacement for Woodhouse during an unsuccessful recall effort afterwards. And then, with Woodhouse unable to run again because of term limits, Buck ran for the same seat in 2020 and won by a few hundred votes against Democrat Kristen Watson, who also hadn't held public office before. Buck explained to us what her plans are as a freshman in the state Senate. I'm new and I'm learning. Like anything I remember saying to myself when I was a teacher, I really didn't know how to be a teacher until I was a teacher. Same thing with the principal. You don't know until you have the job and you step into that role. I'm excited to work with my colleagues up there on both sides of the aisle and hopefully work to get some great things accomplished. I know that budget is one of the uh, biggest issues. She said her experience working in the charter school world sparked an interest in running for state senate. She saw the shortcomings and problems in the education system here in Nevada that she thinks she can help with. As a building leader at CT Sewell, I can remember sitting there thinking, who made these laws? Are they actually taking input from building leaders who have to implement with no funds and just make magic work in their classrooms with little or no autonomy? And so that's when I really, I became interested in it. God put it on my heart to pursue this more and be more of a leader that can talk with all different sides and has so much experience with bringing a community that is struggling together, you know, to a consensus and to a unified vision. Many of the bills she'll be sponsoring this session aim to make improvements to the Nevada education system. There's ways to grow student achievement in Nevada. There are policy ways to do this. It's just not the time. With the pandemic going on, with our budget shortfall, the, the superficial things that I'm bringing to the table aren't necessarily going to make or break uh, anyone. One of the ideas that we had, I'm working with a colleague of mine and, and a few city leaders on internships for students, um, especially focusing on comprehensive high schools, as well as dropouts and getting them into a business. And then they're able to learn workforce as well as stay in high school.
But Buck also has a bill focused on getting prisoners' IDs quicker. Sometimes inmates lose their identification documents through the process of moving through the criminal justice system, but connecting them with the documents could expand their opportunities once they're released. So I work a lot with Novum U. It's like a hope for prisoners. They try and get inmates that are coming out on probation into a job, into school. And one of their biggest problems is inmates come out and they have to wait six weeks to eight weeks to get their identification. So a driver's license or an identification, not a prison identification, but an actual ID. We need to get them into the workforce and get them as productive individuals as soon as possible. Since the state is facing budget shortfalls, we also asked Buck if she would support a mining tax increase. Three proposals to do so were brought up during the special session in the summer, but the measures passed largely on party lines with Republicans opposed. I I think that we definitely need to bring mining into the conversation to see what is actually being put forth to the budget. I don't believe in isolating industries. I know one thing, I don't believe in a state income tax. I think that that's what keeps Nevada so great. I do believe in tax incentives for education opportunities, opportunity scholarships, and incentivizing businesses in that that way. But as far as going after one industry, we need to make sure that we involve them in the conversation so that we don't obliterate our rural communities that depend so much on, on that industry. She's also well aware that she is a member of the minority party and that as a freshman, her bills may not be heard. I have, I have no ill will. I, I want to be positive. I want to make a difference. But at the end of the day, if nothing's hurt, it's okay. I'll be okay. All right. And now moving from a freshman Republican senator to a freshman Democratic senator, we talked with Roberta Lang, the former head of the Nevada State Democratic Party. She will be replacing Democrat Senator David Parks, who termed out. She told us a bit about her story coming to the legislature. So I grew up in uh, Whitefish, Montana. I left there, went to college in Southern California, and then moved to the state of Washington, where I became a teacher. And it was when I was a teacher and president of my teachers union, I went to a national convention and I met my husband, Ken, and I went back to Washington State, gave my resignation moved to Nevada and we were married and, and engaged in six weeks. So it was quite a whirlwind. And that's how I came to Nevada. I set out about a year and a half. And then I got a call to teach in the Clark County School District because they, it was the time they needed teachers. And so I taught at Durango High School for a year and a half until Harry Reid's campaign asked me to come and work for them. I became his deputy campaign manager and got involved in politics in Nevada and became the chair of the Clark County Democratic Party, the chair of the state Democratic Party. I'm currently the longest serving chair of the state party, and I've always been interested in politics. As the person leading the emotionally charged 2016 Nevada Democratic Caucus, in which Hillary Clinton won the state's delegates in spite of a strong showing for Bernie Sanders, Lang told us that she would support changing the complicated caucus system in favor of a presidential primary. I, I would support getting rid of the caucus. I, I, I love the caucus process because the candidates come here, they go out and talk to people, they go to the clubs, they go out to restaurants, they get to know our community. And I think that's really great. 
I want Nevada to be number one state uh, or other, no matter what we do, I want us to be number one. I think we're the most diverse state in the nation and I'll do everything in my power to make sure that we're number one. And I want the same kinds of, whether we're a caucus state or a primary state, I want the same kinds of things to happen with the candidates because I think we reflect the fabric of the nation. She said she recognizes that the session is likely to be a tough one for the state. I'm nervous about COVID, really nervous about COVID and managing that and making sure that everyone's safe. I think that my background, when I was a union leader, I was also for 10 years chief negotiator of our teachers contract. So I've been in negotiation situation. And I think the legislature is a negotiation. I would be amiss if I didn't say I was nervous about it, because I think that I am nervous about that about being up there and, and more it's, I'm nervous because I really want to do a really good job and I really want to represent the people in my district. I think we in our state are in a, it's a pretty bad situation and it's going to be tough. It's going to be a tough first session. The Clark County Education Association Teachers Union put forward two proposals to raise revenue for the state, one that would raise the gaming tax and another that would raise the sales tax. Democrats in charge of the legislature are on the record opposing the measure, but we asked Lang what she thought of them. I don't really have a position at this point. I am, I really, I mean, my whole life, so this isn't anything new. And I'm a teacher, and I think, look, I think teachers are way underpaid in our state and across the nation. I mean, there are some states that pay really well. Washington State pays really well. But I think that I'm not a person that thinks we should be governed by petitions. And that, and I know so I was an educator where I lobbied, where we went and always asked for more money and more money and more money to raise salaries and we never got it. And I understand the frustration and I want to help find a solution, you know, but I just, it's just really hard at this time when everybody's getting cuts to talk about how we give more. We asked Lang if she would support changing the state's property tax formula to potentially raise more revenue to help deal with the state's budget issues. Important to me is protecting seniors that don't have the financial means. I wouldn't want to raise property tax in a way where they couldn't afford to keep their houses that they've lived in all these years. So I think we have to look at that. But yeah, I think we definitely need to look at property taxes. I'm not saying I'm in favor of raising them, but I think we need to look at them and make sure they're fair and equitable. Lang is working on a variety of proposed legislation from renewable energy to cannabis labeling to health care. She shared more details during our interview with her. I don't think people know this, but we get free solar energy from California because they over, they get too much. And so we get free and I'm working on building storage to harness that so that we can use it at times that we need that. I'm working on, this is really important. I'm working on a cancer bill. It's probably going to be a late bill that I'll introduce, but basically in Nevada, people don't know this, but in Nevada, if you have stage one cancer, you can't jump to a stage four medicine. Um, the health, our healthcare requires us to go from stage to stage. And so I am asking for a change in that provision so that if you have stage three or four cancer, you can jump to a stage three or four medicine right away. And I think the reason that the healthcare people, the insurance companies don't want to do that is a three and four medicine so expensive. But the, I think it's really important for people that are stage three or four to get those medicine. I call it, you know, it's like Jimmy Carter jumped to the stage four medicine when he got rid of his cancer and people that can afford it to do that. I want to make that available for everyone. 
Well, that's it for part three of Freshman Orientation. Check out next week's podcast to meet more of the new lawmakers who will be up in Carson City for this session. These interviews were originally conducted by reporter Riley Snyder, and they were edited by me, Joey Lovato. If you want to find out more about your representatives in the state, you can find them by searching Google for Who's My Legislator in Nevada. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Megan Messerly, Riley Snyder, Carrie Buck, Roberta Lang, and everyone who asked questions for the Q&A. If you like listening to the show, consider leaving a rating and review wherever you listen. It really does help the show grow and reach more people. If you want to tell us what a great job we're doing, or if you have suggestions, you can email us at joey at or jacob at Local Reno band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify and Bandcamp. We had additional music this week from Lance Conrad, Storyblocks, and original music from our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>